Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 266. Thanks for tuning in. I'm one of your co-hosts, Tom Maluli, and with me today, Timothy James Maluli. Hello, everybody. We have two very good articles that we want to talk about today. Both kind of have, uh, from us, the same message Tom, which one do you want to start with? Let's talk about the the Vanguard blog, because it talks about capital gains, right. near, near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So this was, like, like Tom just said, it was on Vanguard. We'll link to it in the show notes. The title of the article was Capital Gains Are a Good Thing. From an investor standpoint, we get calls a lot that say the opposite. People are like, oh, I have too many capital gains. Or, I have too much in capital gains. I, I can't do anything with these investments because I have too much in capital gains. But the author of this article is here to kind of put that to bed and say capital gains are a good thing. And I like the way that he started the article. Good analogy, and it kind of puts things into perspective. He said, imagine someone winning an Olympic gold medal, walking up to the podium, and then turning and running away from it. And when a reporter asks them afterwards, why'd you do that? They'll say, taxes. If I bring home my gold medal, I'll be taxed on it. All right, that's ridiculous. So I'm I'm actually going to hit the pause button there because this is something that I learned up until 2016. Olympic medalists were taxed, yeah, on the medals that they received. I had no idea I mean, that gold. that actually happened. <laughs> yeah. How about like, okay, you worked your ass off. This has become your non-paying career because you can't be a professional unless you're in the NBA. You work your whole life for this, and all you get is this medal. Of course, all the fame and recognition that comes along with it. The endorsements. Yeah. The sponsorships. Yeah, the Wheaties box. I yeah. get it. But for goodness sakes, they're going to tax that? The metal? Yeah. That's uh, something that I also learned in the article as well. But It's the, pretty chintzy. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I've I got a problem with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, but the, the point underneath it being that just because the gold medal is going to be taxed when you bring it back. You're not going to pass it up. Yeah, you're not, if you're an Olympic athlete, you're not going to, it's not going to stop you from competing and winning the gold medal just because you're going to get taxed on it. And he said it, it's the same thing for investors and them avoiding realizing capital gains just to avoid the, the tax on it. Yeah, that's a mistake. You can't go broke taking a profit. Paying taxes is the least of your problems. Right, exactly. So if you think of investing as like an Olympic competition or, or any kind of competition, the objective of the game uh, is to make money. Right. So if you have capital gains, you won. Right. You played the game and you won. Not saying that investing is a game. It's not. It's serious business. But like, I keep thinking of Herman Edwards yeah. when, you, when you say that. You invest to win the, the money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, kind of like, woe is me, I guess. Like, oh, I have to pay money. Oh, my investments went up too much. I have to pay capital gains taxes. Like, your investments could have went down and you could have lost all of your money too. So... What do you Which want? one do you want? Yeah. Do you want your investments to go up and you, you make money, the point of investing, or do you want your investments to go down and you lose your money? Now, I don't know. You know, the author actually brought up uh, an interesting point that uh, I think is worth discussing. He talked about in 2006, if you had a, a 60-40 portfolio and you did not rebalance, and rebalancing is where a lot of investors wind up generating capital gains because you're selling something that's become a little overinflated, a little out of balance, and you want to get back in balance. 
And so he talked about if you were a 60-40 allocation, so you had 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds in 2005. 2006, the market worked out great. 2007, the market actually worked out great. Uh, but then if you didn't do any rebalancing, now your 60-40 portfolio two years later, heading into 2008, is now actually 70-30. Or more. Right. The problem is if you continue to not rebalance, you go through 2008 and in March of 09 at the bottom of the market, you actually had less than 50% of your money in stocks. So you actually had less there. It was harder for you to get back on track. Right. Yeah. The the more aggressive portfolio, the 70-30 or the 80-20 would have gotten hit harder than a 60-40 portfolio would in something like 2008. And the same goes for any future market downturns. So avoiding these capital gains, realizing the capital gains to avoid these taxes makes your portfolio significantly riskier if you're not going to rebalance and kind of sell these stocks as they go up every, you know, once a year, every other year, something, however often you rebalance. I don't want to get too far down a rabbit hole, but I have to confess that when the idea of rebalancing really started taking off in like 1998, 1999, about 20 years ago, I used to sit there and say, why in the world would anybody rebalance? You're selling what's going up and you're buying more of what's been going down. That doesn't make sense to me. When you talk about rebalancing, it actually is worth looking at. It's important to have rules when you go into these things. Does it mean you have to sell everything, like the entire position of an investment that's been going up? No. Take some money off the table and use that to rebalance back into things so you keep your account balance. That's really important. Brendan's run the numbers and he he can show you over periods of time how 60-40 portfolios and 70-30 portfolios, meaning 70% of the money is in equities, 30% in bonds, that these kind of balanced portfolios will give you nearly all of the market type returns without having 100% of the money in the market. Right. Yeah. So it's definitely something to not avoid just because you don't want to pay the tax on your stocks that have appreciated over time. Something that we hear a lot from clients, and he also mentioned it in the article, was people tend to overestimate their tax bill too. Oh, I mean, all the over time. the span of your oh. career, how many times have some, has someone called in and say, I'm getting slammed on taxes, or I'm, I'm about to get whacked on taxes. And it's like, yeah. are you? Are you, are you really? really? What is the long-term capital gains tax rate for most people? For most people, it's 20 15 or 20 percent. 15 or 20 percent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's put this in dollar terms so people, because they're like, yeah. oh my God, 20 percent. Yeah. They're in the 25 or 28 percent tax bracket. But it's of the it's of the gains. Right. Too. That's what they miss. Yeah. That's it's not like miss. your whole investment. If you initially invest $100,000 in a stock and it goes to $102,000, you're paying capital gains on the gains, the $2,000. $2, so it's 20% of $2,000, not 20% of $102,000. Yeah. So all in all, in dollar terms, it's usually a lot less than people actually think once they see the numbers. They're like, ah, that's not that bad. Like, yeah, let's do it. The other thing that we should also point out, not mentioned in the article, but you know, if you're investing through a retirement account, 
you don't pay tax on the gains until the money comes out of the account and then it comes out of the account as ordinary income. If you have money in an IRA and you're sitting on gains, you can sell the positions that are in there, rebalance, no taxes. That's yeah. important to remember. Yeah, not rebalancing a retirement account for the same reasons we were just talking about is even less intelligent <laughs> than than uh, in, a, in a taxable account or some other type of account that isn't tax deferred. So the author also quoted Michael Kitsis, who writes a very popular blog in our industry called The Nerd's Eye View. And he points out that uh, there's little economic value in avoiding a capital gain, like saying, hey, I don't want to sell that investment because we have such a big gain. Right. Uh, for an investment, he pointed out, with uh, if, if you've got an investment that's got a 20 to 30% gain, the annual value of avoiding that capital gain is about the same as a single day's worth of volatility in a stock. So let's put this in numbers. Suppose you put $100,000 into an ETF and it grows to uh, $120,000, all right? So you've got a taxable gain of $20,000. The 20% tax on a long-term capital gain yeah. uh, is about $4,000. Yep. That is equivalent to $120,000 investment. That's like a 3%, 4% move right. in an ETF. Yeah. It happens every day. I, I don't really understand what they're talking about. Right. And that, that goes back to the overestimating how much all of this really matters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. When, when we talk about these kind of things, there's uh, another article that I think is worth zooming in on. This was actually in the Wall Street Journal yeah. around the same time. I think both of these articles for me kind of fall under the uh, I lack sympathy for you problem. Uh, <laughs> it's a, They're both like nice, nice issues, I guess, to have for, for people. First world problems. Yeah, pretty much. So this next article from the Wall Street Journal, the headline says, Congress is coming for your IRA, which is already kind of misleading. Inflammatory. And, yeah. And then the subheading uh, says the SECURE Act would upend 20 years of retirement planning and stick it to the middle class. My right, gosh, talk about like fear-mongering clickbait to get people all riled up. And let's be clear, this is an opinion piece that was published in the Wall Street Journal. And the author is, uh, he wrote a book, I'll just give you the title, the overtaxed investor slash your tax bill and be a tax alpha dog. Tax alpha dog. What in the world is that? I have no idea, but when you read that at the end of the article, the rest of the article makes sense because, like you said, it's an opinion piece and this guy is just talking his book. So let's talk about the SECURE Act. SECURE stands for Setting Every Community Up for retirement enhancement. I I must have glazed over that in the article because I didn't know that's what it stands for. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Here's uh, the worst part is that it was it was passed 
uh, through the House with a vote of 417 to 3. The the main parts of the SECURE Act, I think the one that he touches on the most and that people have been harping on is the fact that it's essentially eliminating the stretch IRA, which is the stretch IRA, the way it works now is if you inherit an IRA from someone uh, as... Not your spouse. Right. Right. You can stretch, hence the stretch IRA, you can stretch the payments over your entire life expectancy. So you take out less money each year. You know, it lessens the burden that you have to take out each year. So prior to uh, 1999, what would happen is if somebody uh, passes away and they left an IRA to a beneficiary, a beneficiary who's not their spouse. Right. Because the rules before and after 1999 for spouses remain the same. Your spouse passes away, Everything gets rolled over into your own IRA, not a taxable situation whatsoever, all right? However, if the beneficiary of an IRA is not the spouse, now we have a situation. Prior to 1999, it was, okay, you inherited this, uh, this IRA, you can't roll it over, and too bad, here's the gross amount, here's what you have to pay in taxes, here's a check, have a nice day. So in 1999, they permitted these stretch IRAs. They're also called beneficiary IRAs, where the IRA now gets rolled over tax-free to a beneficiary, whoever the beneficiary is in the account. And this is going to, if this thing gets signed by the president, this is going to be true for everybody who dies after 2019. What they're talking about is basically the rules are going to change. Let's walk through them briefly so people understand it's essential i think the main point is that it's it's accelerating the uh time that you have to take the money out of the account it's not going back to the way it was before 1999 like you said they cut you a check here you go right if you don't want it oh well you're getting it so now the the current scenario for someone who passes away prior to uh this secure act becoming law is suppose you pass away with a $1 million retirement account and your beneficiary is 25 years old, that person needs to take a required minimum distribution. Even though they're not 70, they're 25. Right. They have to take out a piece every year for the rest of their years going forward based on their life expectancy and that number doesn't change. Yeah. And so. That person, under that scenario that I just gave you, that person would be looking at a distribution each year of a little over $15,000 a year. Right. But they've got a million bucks sitting in a retirement account that they're going to stretch out. Someone who's 25. Yeah. They're, they're going to live for 50 or 60 years. Yeah. Again, that's that's why it falls under the nice problem to have, I think, in my book, you know, first world problems. Like, you have a million dollars. You just inherited a million dollars. So let's talk about what the what the what the outcome is going to be now. So instead of being able to stretch it over your life expectancy, uh, a non-spouse beneficiary who's getting this money has 10 years to take that money out of the IRA and, you know, in distributions to themselves. So in that same example where you use a million dollars, that person has 10 years to take a million dollars out. So you, they can the minimum out, would be a, roughly $100,000 every uh, year. On the flip side, if they were to take the average, it would be about 100 grand a year yeah. that they'd have to realize. Also can operate under the plan where they don't take anything out for the first nine years, and then in year 10, empty it, empty it out, Yep, gains and all. 
let's say you put a million dollars into your stretch IRA, beneficiary IRA, and under the new rules, now this million dollars over 10 years grows to $2.4 million. You don't take anything out, you're going to have a pretty big you're check paying to pay. your gains at that point. Well, actually, the yeah, the $1.4 million gain plus you're taking out the million dollars right. as well. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge thing. It's 10 years. It's not like you have to take it out the old way right. all at once. Right. And it's still the whole thing with inheritances for, for people. I mean, we call it a burden, but like, is it really? I mean, this is, this is an inherited IRA. It's found money. You didn't work for it. You did nothing for it. Someone died and gave you this money for free, essentially. Right. People just get so caught up on that gross number. And then when they get the net check after taxes and everything, then it's like, oh, well, I was supposed to get $100,000, but I only ended up getting $70,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. God forbid you only get $70,000. Yeah. Poor you. It's found money. <laughs> Come on. So... Uh, the author also goes into the point where the IRA owner could still leave the account to a surviving spouse who would remain exempt from that 10-year clock, but the widow would be paying taxes in a higher filing single tax bracket. The bracket can easily easily jump from 12 to 25 percent or 24 to 35 percent as the mandatory payout ratios automatically increase with age. This is where the author has a little fun with numbers. For example, he writes, the required minimum distribution for a 70-year-old is 3.7% of the retirement account balance. We tell everybody, use 4% for the first year or two. It's a good back-of-the-envelope number. Right. So for a 90-year-old, the required minimum distribution rate is 8.8%. Sounds like a lot. Right. But remember, you've been taking money on a mandatory basis for 20 years at that point. Yeah. So the account's going to be smaller. 8.8% is not that big a deal. Right. Uh, and if you don't have income over, I think it's $10,000, Yeah. you're not going to be paying uh, filing a tax return anyway. No. Let's real quick just touch on one, one last thing that this author was lamenting about in terms of the financial aid and need oh, and how this is going to impact families. Do you want to break down his argument. So he says the SECURE Act would be a college planning nightmare for middle-income parents. If the parents of college-age children inherit $500,000 in an IRA, I'll say that again real slow, if uh, middle-income parents inherit a half a million dollars, <laughs> the resulting highly taxed distribution, say 50 grand a year for 10 years, would make them richer on paper than they actually are, eviscerating, that's a Scrabble word, eviscerating their ability to qualify for need-based financial aid. Let's say that again real for, slow. Wait, yeah, for what? Need-based financial aid. You don't have a need. You yeah. just inherited a half a million bucks. Right. <laughs> Richer on paper. What does that what does that even mean? Yeah. Richer on paper. They have they have the money. The yeah. money is there. Yeah. They got $500,000. You don't need money for college if you just inherited $500,000. That's your financial aid. That's right. That inherited IRA becomes your financial aid. Yeah. You don't need money for school. You have it. Yeah. We should just like, link to it in the show notes because everyone's got to got to read this thing because it's it's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Again, kind of woe is me. Like, oh, I I make too much money. My investments went up too much. I inherited too much money. Like, you yeah. could have some seriously worse problems. Trust me. But before you make a financial decision involving these kind of things, talk to a financial planner. We'd be happy to speak to you as well, 
But thanks for listening to episode number 266 of the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. Catch you on the next episode.